All right, I wanted to start with a couple of things before we actually get to that handout. Um, as we continue to think through this, we are talking about this today, again, this afternoon with our uh, deacons. Um, the pastors are continuing to talk about this together and how do we lead in this or praying through this together. I wanted to cover a couple of things to remind us um, towards patience. And, and by that, I just mean we need to be thinking through this is new um, for many of us. Um, we'll take our time. We'll continue to think through scriptures. Um, this week, we're going to look at these 11 biblical principles for local church government. Next week, Pastor Jonathan will be teaching on the different types of church government among denominations. One of the first questions people ask once they start looking at the biblical passages is, where did we get our form of church government? What are the other churches doing and where did they get their ideas? How do we know this is the right path to follow? Um, so those are all really good questions and hearing how other Christians have worked through this, um, come to different conclusions is helpful. Um, I think when we first started talking through this, the first question is, is this even Baptist, right? Isn't this Presbyterian? Elders isn't a Baptist thing, is it? Um, so we'll, we'll address that a little bit. Um, we'll get it into more depth down the road. Um, the first point I want to make as we set up what we're talking about this evening is first, there is no system of, of government explicitly, these two words are really important, explicitly commanded in Scripture. What I showed you last week in those passages are the descriptions that are seen all over the New Testament. So again, one of the points that I made right away is this isn't about sinning or not sinning. It's about wisdom. It's about wisdom. Um, I'm going to quote to you three different authors who write extensively on this. Benjamin Merkel comments, although some aspects of church government are clearly set forth in Scripture. So that's not what we're saying, that there's no clarity on this. Some things are set forth clearly. So teaching is the responsibility of elders, for example, and not the deacons. Other aspects are less clear. How are the leaders to be selected? That's the example he would give there. As a result, at certain points, we must allow for some flexibility while acknowledging that our personal preferences should not be put on par with Scripture. It is necessary, therefore, that we approach the issue of church government with humility and with a teachable spirit. Um, I'll, I'll get to the second quote in a minute, but if you are paying attention to different churches in Greenville, around the country, that believe the things we do about the Bible, about the gospel, they function a little bit different even when they have a plurality of elders. If you know along this road, there's a couple of churches, right? Well, a couple of them have elders, and they look a little bit different in their government. The church right down next to us, Community Baptist Church, they've had elders as a Baptist church, I think, from their inception. Trinity Bible Church has elders, right? Heritage Bible Church has elders. There's lots of different examples we could give in this town, but they all function a little bit differently in their application, not in their conviction that they should be elders. Uh, pastor and author Phil Newton concurs with Merkel's assessment. The polity framework, so notice he uses that word framework, sketched in the New Testament does not give every detail. Rather, it leaves some things to the wisdom of local churches. So if we're going to have to work through the details, what does that mean? And come to conclusions together, what does that require of our spirit toward one another? 
What does that demand that we make the first priority? That it looks the way that we want or we're used to or afraid of or not comfortable with or we're saying in charity we need to work together to consider what God has led us toward. John Piper also articulates the mixed nature of contemporary biblical eldership. So notice he's not saying it's not there. He's saying the way it's practiced is different. Church government really is a mingling of biblical principle with practical, cultural, historical, and local dynamics. We need to be honest about that and not absolutize our systems. So don't insist that you know this is the way it should work. I'm familiar with that church, and that's how they do it, and so we got to do it that way. Or, I know all of us have been in churches, and because they're filled with humans, we've been in bad practices, right? But we can't let that dictate how we move forward either and say, well, I've seen this done poorly, so we got to stay away from that. Uh, that's, that's not wise or safe either. Now, each of these men I'm quoting is convinced of biblical eldership, yet we have to recognize that the Bible is not explicit in commanding every detail of a system or giving all the details we want. It does consistently describe this plurality of elders lovingly serving the church as they handle the word, as they teach God's people, as they disciple and shepherd and of deacons lovingly modeling service in the church by working hard to allow the elders to focus on the ministries of the word and prayer. So the point I'm making is we need to accept there will be some level of subjectivity and individual implementation of these practices to our individual church. One more point I just want to highlight by way of application for us. There is no perfect system of human government. So we can pursue these biblical descriptions that we would say God has designed for us to follow, that are wise for us to follow, and yet we have to recognize this side of eternity, it won't work perfectly. So in working through these things with you, I want you to understand I'm not saying if we go toward this with care, with patience, this is something you need to even pray for your pastors. Sometimes being humans, sometimes... um, I hate to say this because this is being recorded. Being men, we think if I get my plan figured out and we work the plan, everything will go perfectly. It doesn't always work like that, does it? And that's not just a male thing. That's a human thing, isn't it? So we're not trying to aim at that. We're aiming at what does God describe? How do we do that to the best of our ability? And in wisdom, apply God's word. All right? Um, We're not saying there will be no problems if we come to a point and we have the lay elders that we're looking for. In fact, because of the way that life works, because we're involved as sinners, we actually could have more problems. Perhaps that's what God is designing for us to work together in sanctification. So our goals should not be set by pragmatism, what works best, nor by tradition, what we're most accustomed to or comfortable with. Or familiar with, but by what we see in the scriptures. Uh, Pastor and Bible teacher Alex Strauch makes this point about this uh, thought of not aiming at the perfect. If you were to ask, for example, does marriage work? Many people would answer that it doesn't appear to be working in our society, does it? So should we discard the institution of marriage and look for something better? No. No. 
The marriage institution is God's will for the human race as revealed in the Bible. So in order to make our marriages work, we must first believe it to be a biblical teaching and then be committed to making it work and recognizing patiently this will take time and we'll keep at it. Only then will the marriage work. The same conditions hold true for many things in the Christian life, right? We're not perfect parents when we get that little bundle of joy home from the hospital, right? There's no manual for this other than what God's principles teach us in his word. And we grow through it. And that's God's design. I think the similar thing is being illustrated here. The same conditions hold true for implementing a biblical eldership. We must believe it's scriptural and be committed by God's help to making it work effectively. So I'm encouraging us toward patience and continued carefulness with one another as we pursue this change. Some of you are already convinced of these changes. Some of you come from churches where you've seen a plurality of elders and it's worked well. And you're saying, well, what's the holdup? Well, some are not convinced of this yet. Some are maybe moving toward that. Um, Some are thinking through it. Some are looking at the texts we're giving. Um, Some are still needing their questions to be answered. So if you're already convinced, that is wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. Share that as an encouragement with other members and encourage them as to why you think this will help serve our body best. But all of us should be praying together that this change would glorify God, allow us to better serve one another and advance his cause. That's one thing I want to encourage you again with in Acts 14, 23, when Paul and Barnabas appoint elders. Remember last week we said that was always accompanied with prayer with prayer. Um, Before we get to these 11 biblical principles, I want to show you a short video um, that talks about the role of lay elders and staff elders and really what we're thinking of as pastors together. I want to keep working on that. That's where there's a lot of questions for us, and that's understandable. Um, I think this will help address this to a little bit. Um, We'll continue to work on that as we look at the qualifications in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll start probably including a video, you know, three or four minutes Um, on Sunday night, just to help, again, reinforce some of the things that we're learning together. All right. Every elder is a pastor. The New Testament uses three terms that are all distinct, but they all describe the same office. They refer to the same reality. So one of those is elder, another is overseer, and the third one, which is actually the least common, is pastor. So you see all three of these terms uh, used of the same office. For instance, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17... Paul calls the elders of the church of Ephesus to come to him. Uh, Verse 28, he refers to them as having been made overseers by the Holy Spirit. And uh, in his sermon to them, he exhorts them to care for the church. The Greek verb behind that word care is shepherd, which is where we get our word pastor. Uh, So elder, overseer, pastor, they're all describing the same office, the same role. And I think uh, throughout the New Testament, we do see that the elders who rule well, for instance, First Timothy 5, 17, are worthy of double honor. But we don't see that the office of elder is restricted to those who do it full time. So you might have someone who's a, a business owner, a teacher, a gardener, whatever, by day. But he's also an elder of the church, which means he is a pastor. He is shepherding. He's teaching. He's setting a godly example. He's contributing together with the other elders uh, to set the overall direction of the church. And I think one of the reasons that's really important for a man who aspires to pastoral ministry to consider is that pastoring is not all or nothing. 
uh, it does make a big difference whether your day job is uh, an army test pilot uh, or the senior pastor of a church. That is a very significant practical difference. But it doesn't mean the army test pilot cannot also be a pastor. I recognize churches in different traditions will have different sort of takes on this. Uh, but I think biblically speaking, uh, it should be recognized publicly. It should be integrated into the life of the church that every elder is a pastor. So, for instance, various of our elders in our local church, Capital Hill Baptist Church, uh, including the ones who are not paid full-time by the church, uh, they'll teach publicly in a variety of contexts. They'll do premarital counseling, weddings, funerals. Uh, they'll leave services. Uh, and they, they have every bit as much of a vote and a contribution on the whole eldership uh, as the full-time pastors do. As one of the full-time pastors, I often lose votes uh, to something I propose or on, on something that a lay elder might, uh, might propose instead. So every elder is a pastor. One of the big takeaways is that means you're, you're not sort of facing a yawning chasm. If you're having a desire to do more pastoral work, if you're having a desire uh, to preach and teach God's word, to shepherd people, to care for them, to counsel them, to invest really significantly in the health of the whole church, it's not like your only way to do that is to quit everything, go to seminary, uh, pack up, and eventually somehow try to become a full-time preaching pastor. It's really more of a spectrum. Uh, and we've even seen in our own church a number of lay elders over time uh, get hired full-time by the church just between sort of distinguished gifts they had and particular needs or opportunities our church has. Uh, so I think one of the, the pressures that a man can feel that can lead to a sort of existential crisis is, oh, I just have this desire to do more and more for the Lord. I just have this desire to, to teach and to help people understand God's word, and I just feel so constrained in my day job. Well, that could be a good indication that you want over time to move your vocation toward pastoral ministry. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have to quit your job. There's lots of faithful ways to fulfill that vocation to serve and build up God's church without it meaning a decisive break from what you're doing. So I think recognizing that every elder is a pastor can hopefully take some wrong weight and pressure off of uh, how you're trying to make some of those decisions. So again, every elder is a pastor. Every pastor is an elder. For more on that, you can look especially at 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, Acts chapter 20, uh, and elsewhere elders are mentioned in the New Testament. All right, so he said a lot of what I've said, right? That's good. Uh, we want to hear this a couple times through. Let's take our sheet now, 11 principles for, for local church government. All right? We have the scriptures there that are included in these um, principles. Um, so where I found this is um, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. John Piper's uh, church that he used to be pastor of worked through these principles in 1991. Um, and these are things that they've offered to help um, other churches as they think through these things. I came upon them in my research over the last couple years, and I thought the summary of these 11 principles were really helpful to be thinking about how this shapes the ministry. Um, before we get into all the details and the nitty-gritty of qualifications and things like that, I thought this was important to review these biblical principles. So, principle one, the local church is governed by Christ. All right? One passage that will highlight is Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I say to, that you, to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and right there, that's where Peter is professing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the truth he's building the church on. He says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
This governance was mediated through the authority of the apostles and their close associates in the New Testament. Today, Christ still rules through the words of his apostles as they are preserved for us in the inspired writings of the New Testament. So look at that passage, Ephesians 2. So then you, this local church of Ephesus, are the household of God. That's a collection of both Jews and Gentiles who have come to Christ the same way. They're united into this incredible spiritual building. And this is the point. You're built upon the foundation, the teaching of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of that building. So what, what we're trying to do in principle one is orient ourselves to who is the head. Who is this really about? This isn't about having the perfect system set up. Or governance. It's that we would honor our Christ. So the conclusion, therefore, every effort will be made to conform to the structure and procedures and spirit of church governance as closely as possible to New Testament guidelines with a constant eye to promoting the glory of God and the advancement of the faith. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This should be done in his house. And then Philippians 1.25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. All right, that's principle number one. All right, number two, the ministry of the church is primarily the work of the members in the activity of worship toward God, nurture toward each other, and witness toward the world. Isn't it funny that churches come up with the same priorities? What have we said our priorities? We don't say this as much um, in the last little while, but we say worship, build, advance. Do you see they're the same, right? This is what God's people should be doing as his church. So internal structures for church governance are not the main ministry of the church or the body, but are the necessary equipping and mobilizing of the saints for the work of ministry. So again, that's really important to think about, and I want to make sure that's a corrective that we have in our minds. This isn't the main thing about the church. If we spend so much time talking about this that we're not actually getting into each other's lives, sharing the word with those who need to receive Christ as Savior, if we're not worshiping, we're thinking, oh, all of this has to be about straightening up our structure, then, then we're missing what this is really all about, right? So we see this clarified in Ephesians 4. And we've talked about this passage several times. And Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Those are all word workers communicating the word. For, there's a purpose word, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So in a sense, in a sense, the mission stays the same, doesn't it? And that's why we would say, because we're saying we need to make a change because it doesn't follow the descriptions of the Bible, we wouldn't conclude that the, the polity, the governing structure we have now, is sin. That we're not saying that. Because we are keeping the mission correct, right? We're saying, I think we could do better at obeying Ephesians 4 as we move to what's described in the scriptures. All right, principle three. Governance structures should be lean and efficient to this end to keep the mission and in focus. 
not aiming to include as many people as possible in office holding, but to free and fit as many people as possible for ministry, which is implied in the preceding principle. It doesn't say that you're saying, okay, we, we want to keep our, our elder team as small as possible and the deacon team as small as possible. But what this is trying to argue against is the idea of walking into the church and saying, we need 15 committees to do all these things that the body really should just be doing naturally. We are all servants called to do the work of the ministry by Ephesians 4. You don't really need to have a sign-up sheet to say, I'm going to get into somebody's life and speak the word to them. I'm going to find out how I can pray for them. I want to hear how God is at work in their life. I want to be bold enough and humble enough and gentle enough to even add a word of correction when necessary. But I need to have enough of a relationship where that's heard in the right way. That's where we need to keep growing in the work of ministry. And you don't have to have an office title to do that. None of us do. None of us do. All of God's people are to be doing the work of service. All of us. So no matter what office anybody has in the church, we all have the same responsibility. Every member ministry, remember? We're finding other believers to disciple. Principle four. Christ is the head of the church, and spiritually, all his disciples are on a level ground before him, each having direct access to him and responsibility to intercede for the good of all as a community of priests. So that New Testament language is trying to help us remember each of us are uniquely qualified to serve each other in the body. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We, as a church, are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Matthew 23, 8-11, Jesus says, But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. So the context of that passage is what? Do you remember where that, we've, we've talked about that from Mark chapter 10. What are the disciples doing just before that happens in that passage? Isn't this where they're on the road um, and the disciples are arguing who's going to be greatest among them? Can I have this position or that position? D do you see? Even Jesus is saying, I know your tendency is going to say, I am something if I have this title. You are something if you are serving. You are great if you are giving of yourself for the benefit of other people. If you're looking like your master. Does that make sense? Really, ultimately, in the end, titles don't really matter that much, do they? They're simply a way for us to say, how do we organize? But the, the job is the same. First uh, Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That's who we pursue as a body. Revelation 1.6, Christ has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what this means? Is you can't be a lazy Christian. We're a kingdom of priests before our God and Father. Every one of us is supposed to be maturing to that end, 
right? And what we're saying in the roles of the leaders is they're modeling for us how to do that. All of the character qualifications, you're going to hear this again and again because this is the point of application for us. It's the tide that raises all boats. These are ordinary qualifications for every member to pursue except being apt to teach. This is what Christians should look like and pursue Christ-likeness. He's saying grow up, all of you, grow up. When you look at your leaders, you're supposed to see them, imitate them, and it's another way for you to grow up. That's the goal. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, this is for all of us. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We're a healthy church, not if we get our government right. But if we're caring for one another and discipling one another and worshiping well and sharing the gospel faithfully, that's when we're healthy, right? So there are ways where we need to follow the pattern, certainly. I'm not arguing against that, obviously, but there's a sense where that's, that's not the health that we're aiming at. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is written to the body, not the pastors, not the deacons, to the whole body. Principle five, not inconsistent with this equality, God has ordained the existence of officers in the church, some of who are charged under Christ with the leadership of the church. We've looked at several of these passages. Let me just read uh, the first two. 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well or govern well or exer- exercise oversight well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Right. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Appreciate them. Um, And then that's where the Hebrews 13 passages tell us to follow them. Principle six, under Christ and his word, the decisive court of appeal in the local church in deciding matters of disagreement is the gathered church assembly. What this means is that we are congregational by biblical conviction. The final authority in the church is the congregation in the clearly set forth places where God's given them authority. This is implied first in the fact that the leaders are not to lead by coercion, but by persuasion and free consent. They're not the authority in the church telling you, you must do this because I'm your boss. They're leading in front like the shepherd does, 1 Peter 5. Peter says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God, lead them and feed them, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Do you see the tenderness, the care, the pastoring that's described there? Second, this is implied second in the fact that elders may be censured or removed all right, that's 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. This is recognizing you have human leaders. Sometimes it's re- required that you remove a leader. 
This shouldn't be done with great self-righteousness. Oh, we found out that you're a sinner. You step away now. That, that doesn't seem to understand what it is that we are ourselves, right? It's saying so that all will be fearful of sinning. That's the goal, that we would be honoring before our God. And third, this is implied in the fact that Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 5, 4 depict the gathered church assembly as the decisive court of appeal in matters of discipline. Your pastors don't get to say who's in and out based on their judgments of sin. The body does that. The body does that. So the congregation votes on who should come in and who should be put out. The congregation votes on their leaders. The congregation votes on their budget, which reflects how well we're doing those three things, worship, build, advance, right? Principle seven. This is a conclusion from what we just talked about. The local congregation, therefore, should call and dismiss its own leaders. Principle eight. The leaders of the church should be people who are spiritually mature and exemplary, gifted for the ministry given to them, have a sense of divine urging, and are in harmony with the duly established leadership of the church. They're compatible with the leaders already present. They're willing and humble in working together, right? They're not saying, okay, I'm coming in to tell you guys how to do this. They're ready to work together with the men that God's already led to that church. Um, We see this in the statements we've looked at in 1 Timothy 3. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. And then 15 qualifications are given. Titus 1, 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, and then it follows. What Paul is saying is this is the way toward health, getting healthy, godly men in front and having the rest of the body follow and grow up and take some of those roles as well. Every member should be, to a degree, following those examples. Every man should be aspiring or or working toward um, the qualifications of these offices. All right, principle nine. Spiritual qualifications should never be sacrificed to technical expertise. All right, you need to read this one. You need to think through this one carefully. All right, for example, deacons or trustees or financial and property administrators should be men or women with hearts for God, even more importantly than they have a head for finance or whatever their role is, and best of all, both. Right? So the sense is here's where they're getting this. Again, this was written in 1991. When you look at the qualifications, it does not ask about their human competencies. It asks about their character, their walk with the Lord over time. Is this maturity? And, and I like how this is stated. Best of all, you want both. There's certainly wisdom in saying this person is trained in this aspect. He could help the church in this. But even that has to be handled carefully, right? It can't be, I'm the expert. You all have to do what I say because I am the expert. That's not the character qualifications that the, the scriptures are laying out. All right, uh, principle number 10. The last two are quick. The selection process should provide for the necessary assessment of possible leaders by a group that's able to discern the qualifications mentioned in number eight. What this is saying is the people who are going to help you discern who is ready are the men who are already in that office. 
right? And we talked a little bit about this, and I'm happy to receive questions on this when we um, go to the Q&A time. Um, what does that look like? How do we prepare for that? That's fine, but there's a sense where we're working together as leaders and congregation to say, who are the men ready? Um, there's always going to have to be a time of private discussion and preparation and training and examination by the current leaders. They know what the role requires. Um, they should be studying um, those passages. They're most responsible for that. They may know things that the rest of the body doesn't know and doesn't need to know. They may be saying, I have discipled this man and he is headed in the right direction and we're encouraged that the body is seeing him grow, but maybe the answer is not no, it's not yet. Um, so there's all kinds of pieces that are accompanying this. The one thing, again, and, and I shared this with the uh, deacons this afternoon, the only one piece of biblical um, instruction we have about the speed of putting in new men is do not be hasty. The point that Paul is making in that passage, at least to some degree, is if that man is put in and you're too fast and he sins in some way, those who authorized him to that role are participating, are responsible for that sin. So there's a sense where the time of testing needs to be done both by the current eldership and approved of by the body, affirmed by the body. Remember when we talked through this, um, and we can cover this more at another point, three consciences have to be satisfied. That man has to recognize, and I would hope he's seeing God work through his gifting. As he handles the word, he should be encouraged that God's people are following him. His family should be following him first. That's why that's listed in the character qualifications. If you look at him and, and the family's not following, that, that should be a point where we all say, mm, maybe not right now. Maybe everything else is in place, but maybe not right now. Um, so when he looks behind him, who, who's following him? Who's, who's growing up from his ministry of the word? Who's getting stronger and healthier and eager to do what God's called us to do more and more. Um, and then the last part of it is, and the process provides for the final approval. The, the final authority is the congregation. Um, uh, the final approval by the congregation of all officers. So this isn't where your pastors are saying, okay, we're going to tell you who we want to be the men, and you guys just have to live with it. No, this is, this, that would be totally the wrong spirit on either side. If, if we're in some kind of power struggle where the pastors are saying, you need to put up the guys that I want you to put up, and the congregation says, no, you can't tell us what to do, we've totally missed the boat, right? If we're looking for godly men to help lead, we should be coming to very similar conclusions. And when there are a little bit difference, there needs to be some mutual trust and charity toward one another to say, okay, they, they're evaluating that carefully. They're having a lot of conversations um, I heard one pastor friend say it takes him six to nine months to meet with a prospective new elder as he works through things like, again, I shared this with the deacons, the statement of faith. The elders need to be able to defend the statement of faith and as well as teach it. Uh, the church covenant, what does it mean to be a member? They're leading in that. They're helping bring new members in. Um, then also they need to be able to handle current issues 
They need to have studied and be studying and be curious about what the Bible says about current um, things that are conflicts in our culture against the church. And then finally, they need to be able to be working well with the current leadership. If there's this thought of, I don't know if, I don't know if we can work well together, that's probably not the right fit then. Maybe somebody needs to have some conversations, hard conversations, that say, we, we need to address this area in your life. All right? Uh, principle 11. Terms of active service should not be dictated by the desire to, again, include as many different pe- people as possible in leadership, but by the careful balance between the need of the body, on the one hand, to have the most qualified leaders, and on the other hand, to guard against burnout and stagnation. This is just a practical principle for setting some type of term limits is, is how I would explain this or how I'd apply this. Um, you don't want to leave a man in place so long that he's like, I don't know if I want to be involved in ministry ever again. Um, there's a piece where that, that's very possible to happen. So we want to be careful of that and give um, each of our pastors, our elders in the future, full support. That's why we have um, a sabbatical for our pastors, and one of them is on sabbatical now for this this very reason, Um, for encouragement, for spiritual growth, um, for the long-term health of both him and the body. So I think that's a good illustration. All right, let's take time now for questions. Um, I will tonight, for those that are listening later, try to repeat your question, all right? So those in the audience can hear, and then those who may be listening later. All right, so questions on what we've covered tonight, or maybe anything that you have in mind that is not too hard of a stumper to get us started. All right, what other questions do you have? All right, let's start, Alex, and then I'll come back up here. Yeah, Alex. question and a comment. Okay. We will work at it. Absolutely. That's right. That's good. Yes, Katie. How many lay elders are we thinking of adding in the next, say, two to three years? So that's hard to be very specific. That's a good question, and I think that's one of the specifics we have in mind. Again, what I would say is I want to be slow, and especially the first ones, we want to have full confidence together as a unified body that that these are men that we're already recognizing are serving, are leading with the word. Um, so to, first off, I'd say it'll probably be fewer than we think, okay? So I'm thinking um, a few. And then as, as time goes on, I would think as fast or slow as we need to make sure they're ready. So it's a nebulous answer, but I think a couple at a time makes sense to me. Um, but again, as the body sees... Um, one of the ways that we're, we're working on, the Constitution Committee is meeting tonight again. We're working through some of this. Um, as We're not going to have to wait till the end of the year to bring up new elders. So as people come to their pastors, and really what we want to be doing as current elders and pastors is to be seeking input. Hey, who are you seeing that is ministering the word and God is using them to grow the body? Um, let's, let's talk about that. And, and once we hear the same name over and over, then we go to that guy and say, okay, do you see you're gifted for this? How's your life? Um, are you walking with the Lord? Is there areas of weakness? Do we need to talk about that? Um, so I think both that for the elders and the deacons. So I can't put a number on it, but, but I'm thinking by the end of two or three years, I'm thinking we'll have six, seven, you know, something like that, lay elders. 
So the question was, um, how many lay elders do we expect in the first several years? All right, next question. Anybody else? Dig deep. Oh, yes, Tina. I think we all should. So I'm going to dodge that question a little bit. Do I already have somebody in mind? Absolutely, I do. Um, I think what I am most encouraged by is how our whole body has been thinking through this. And, and again, I was, telling, I was telling our deacons this. I am so encouraged by the overall growth of our church, especially our men, as we're saying it's really important what we are in our character before God. And I see spiritual health growing up all throughout our body. When, when we look at, I'll give you an example. This is something Jonathan and I have talked a good bit about. When you look at how many different men now are involved in teaching um, at all levels, you, you can see God raising, raising up leaders among us. And that is super encouraging. So I want us all to be thinking, okay, I need to look at the qualifications and be praying through them and saying, one, if I'm a man, where do I need to keep growing in this? And two, who am I seeing that is leading in this way? Who am I encouraged by regularly? And here's where I want to encourage you so there's not between the pastors, the current elders, and the body. I want you to take those responsibilities seriously. Recognize what they are as spiritual qualifications and ask yourself, is this man that? Is he able to teach the word? If you pricked him and he started bleeding, would Bible come out? You know what I mean? Um, Is he passionate about that? Does he talk about what he's studying at home on his own? Are God's people going to him saying, hey, I have this problem. And I know, without saying it out loud, they're saying, I know you to be a man of the word. And could I get your opinion on that issue? Or I'm really struggling and you're the first guy that I thought could be of help to me. Because I know I'm going to get the word. So sometimes that, that's hard to differ, differentiate. Um, sometimes somebody's growing in that. Um, but where are we already seeing evidence of that happening? What, what really needs to be happening, and this is something I want you to hear again and again, is the men we are looking for are men already doing the job. So we're looking for deacons who are already serving. Again, title or no title. When we're looking for elders, we're looking for somebody shepherding, title or no title, Right? And, and that's the key, because we're all supposed to be doing that to some degree, okay? All right, good. Very good question. Somebody else? Yeah, David? For practical, we're talking about that last one, church and serve, practical church. Are we saying that the lay elders would have a limited number of years, or are you saying that they would be qualified for the same thing with non-lay elders, where there will be a time where basically a time off? Yes, very good. Is there a distinction? So David's asking, is there a distinction between um, lay elders and staff hour elders in their length of service? Um, so we would say for lay elders, again, what we're recommending, this is what I have seen again and again um, in different churches as I talk to other pastors in the things that I'm reading. It is recommended to give lay elders a term. Um, Three years is what we're proposing. Two three-year terms in a row is possible, and then at least a year off. Um, There's wisdom in that, I think, in a couple of practical ways. Um, Let's say we just have a season that is very challenging and heavy. And for three years, he is being called, apart from his regular job that he's giving good effort to, um, being a good example in that, 
He's called to do heavy discipling or counseling or correction or church discipline. There are waves of that. It might be necessary for his own spiritual health, um, for the health of the body, for him to say after three years, I need to take a break. Um, And that would be wise, and we need to think through that. And then after six years, if I I would just say if a man is um, serving well and with discipline and diligence, he's going to want a year break. So I think there's wisdom in giving lay elders a break. And that's why it'd be similar for staff pastors. There's a sense where the sabbatical policy we have, um, you get, uh, I think it is a week for every year. But generally, like I I told Pastor Stephen, we'd like to see this happen like once every six or seven years. We're not saying every three years your pastors are going to be on another sabbatical. That's not the intention. This is years of heavy, faithful ministry and saying, Okay, after six, seven years, um, I know one church where they've written it in, it's every seven years. So it really is the same thing then for the lay elders. Yeah. But for, again, for us, this is the full-time work. So, yeah, that's good. Do I see? Yes, Marina? With that in mind, if you're starting all of our elders, I would think at one point, how are you yeah. going to stagger it so that you're not Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, so that's a, a specific piece that we're wrestling with in the Constitution. So how do we stagger the elders starting so that they're not all rolling off at the same time is the question. Um, so what, what, again, we've seen in looking at other churches' constitutions, talking to other pastors, is you can be working to bring on a new elder at any time. Um, but we're not going to be strict in saying, okay, you started in July, so you're three years. We're going to try to keep track of that. That would give me a headache, and and that'd be hard for the church. The reaffirmation time is at the end of the year, at the annual meeting in December. Um, So let's say they start in July. They'll probably technically serve then three and a half years. Um, So that allows us to keep looking for new ones as God raises them up, not try to make them wait a long time if they're ready. Um, But then the reaffirmation makes it simple by doing it at that spot. Good. Good question. All right. Others? Yes, Melanie? into this, but I know that in some churches, the pastor's wives have um, huge roles and expectations placed on them. Are there going to be extra expectations placed on the wives of these elders? Yeah, very good. Um, Will there be extra expectations for the elders' wives? Um, I, I think the simple answer is we'd follow the pattern that we see in the staff elders' wives. Um, so whatever they want to do and they're gifted to do and they have time to do, that's what we'd encourage them to do. We'd follow simply Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 there to do the work of the ministry as they're gifted and they have time. So no expectations beyond that. Yeah. And I, I think that's careful and caring for them. One of their primary responsibilities, the way that we look at it for our staff is they're to help care for their husbands and help take care of things with the children. I heard one pastor say, and this is, please don't hear this the wrong way, but he just said, there's a sense where I feel like my wife is a single parent on Sundays, you know, because the pastor is, we're very busy on Sunday. Um, again, that, that's made up in different ways. There's things you adjust for and, and think through. Um, pray for your pastor's wives in some of that. Um, God gives grace in that. But there's a sense where absolutely. Um, your pastor's wives are working and serving alongside, and they recognize that's God's calling for them too. Yeah, Kirsten?
Yes. Yeah, so it, yeah, that, excellent question. So what do we mean that they, you know, roll off? Does it mean they're not serving people or shepherding people anymore? That's a wonderful question. No, because if the expectation in their gifting is that they're shepherding, I would want them to keep shepherding. The pieces that we pull them off of and pull off of their plate are some of the extra things like, again, a heavy counseling load. They wouldn't be included in the discipline discussions. Um, so the, the pieces that are uniquely challenging. So there's, there's parts where, I mean, we want to we wanna, um, spread out the load on premarital counseling and all those kind of things. Um, so we just say that's, that's not, they're not doing that as much. Yeah. Touching on the idea of serving yeah. versus non-serving elders. Yeah. A person who has been qualified to be an elder and has served well as an elder, but has come to the end of that term, they will not be fulfilling that role officially as a member of a, if you will, board of elders. Right. But that person, as a believer who has that level of maturity, yeah. would still have the expectation of any similarly Yes. So you have serving elders because of the term has expired. Yeah. You do not stop becoming an elder. You're just no longer serving in, the, in an, if you will, official capacity. That's correct. That's correct. So even when an elder rolls off, he's still, we would want him to use his gifts. We don't want him to go hide in a corner, and, and we'd probably have conversations if that's how he was feeling. We'd be concerned about that. Um, so that, that's a very good point. All right. When we get going on questions, you guys do great. So we, we are at the end of our time, and I want to close us this evening. Um, I'm grateful for you all and for how God is at work among us. Please keep praying. These are, these are good discussions to have. Um, if you have not, if you want the handout that I gave last week with all of the passages, I have those up here. Again, I have lots of literature. Maybe you saw that literature in the back of the auditorium. You're like, eh. Um, and your, your curiosity is peaked now. How, how is this supposed to work out? I'd encourage you to read along with us. I have many, many more resources um, that I can share with you. I love to hand out books and recommend them. So if you need some more reading, um, come see me, all right? Um, so I'm grateful for even our discussion tonight. Let's close with prayer and we'll be dismissed. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the spirit of unity that you have provided to our church family. Um, Lord, we are so grateful for the clear, evident work of your spirit among us. Uh, you are raising our love and dependence on the word. You are growing us in our desire to pay attention and care for one another. You're growing our love for our Savior Jesus Christ more and more. We give you all credit and praise for that. And I pray that you'd continue to help us to grow. Help us to grow in all of these same ways. Help us to uh, be faithful this week. Help us to take the opportunities you provide to share this glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for how you will work in and among us. In Jesus' name, amen.